There is a phrase that we use today which derives its meaning, though it's used in a much different way than it would have been for centuries. It derives its meaning from Greek and Roman traditions. Say, for example, there had been a victorious Olympic athlete or a general victorious on the battlefield among all the accolades they would receive, fame, recognition, they would also be given a wreath. In fact, the New Testament refers to this imagery. The wreath was a crown, in essence, fashioned from a laurel bush or laurel tree, something similar to a bay leaf. Now, there wasn't anything in and of itself of value. These were and are common uh, growths uh, throughout the, the region, but, but it was a visible, tangible display of the victory, again, of an athlete or general, whoever it may be. And, and so there was a phrase that would develop. The person who enjoyed the laurel wreath on his head may sit back for a moment and just kind of bask in the glory of his victory and would rest on his laurels. Have you heard this phrase? It's a little bit old. Maybe it's not as uh, in use. I challenge you this week to work it into a conversation, all right? Again, the person who was resting on his laurels was somebody, at least for a time, who was taking it all in because of his success and receiving, again, the glory and the adulation that, that whatever feat he had accomplished was, was calling for. And over the centuries, it was kind of known that way, to rest on your laurels, again, was, was to receive recognition. But over time and up to the present day, the the meaning of the phrase turned, as they often do. So nowadays, if you are describing somebody as resting on their laurels, you are not saying a positive thing. So for those of you who are hearing it for the first time, this is an important part, all right? If you're going to use it on somebody, know this, it's an insult. I mean, to accuse somebody of resting on their laurels is now... To, to suggest somebody is no longer engaged in the activity. That rather than pushing through and continuing to work and do, doing the work and moving on to the next day and the next thing to conquer, that instead they're just sitting back, taking it easy, enjoying past successes. Now it's a phrase. It really is kind of a synonym of sorts for being lazy or complacent resting on our laurels. Unfortunately, it is a phrase that can have application in the Christian world. It can have application to individual believers. It can have application to churches. It is possible that as God's people, we could rest on our laurels. This happens perhaps when an individual does nothing more in their life than just enjoy the initial salvation God provides. They can be said to be resting on their laurels. I have met people throughout ministry and throughout the years, as you have, 
who maybe say they've been Christians for many, many years, but upon further conversation, it appears that maybe they've not really grown into maturity. Resting on their laurels. Churches can do it. Well, churches can do it in a heartbeat and often celebrate it in a sense. Churches can get into that mindset where they are trying to live today on past successes, looking back to a day, maybe a day that they would dare even suggest was a day where God did more work than he does now, which I hope you realize is a significant theological error. And if you're thinking, what? You're just going to have to wait. We'll get to it, all right? But to suggest that God did something then that he can't also continue to do, to suggest that somehow God is less active than he's ever been is also a problematic theological statement. But that's what can happen in churches. Churches can then rest on their laurels. This is what is going on as we turn our attention once again to the book of Ezra, to the second part of the story of Ezra, and a whole new generation, many of whom are no longer exiles, a whole new generation of God's people living in the land who are about to have an influx of more exiles coming back from Persia, as as we consider the rest of the story of, of Ezra, what we're going to encounter I think, are people who have rested on their laurels. In a lot of ways, the fact that there is a Ezra chapter 7 is is interesting to me, because if you you remember all that we've studied, and I I know it was before Christmas, it, it was last year, all right, was the last time we talked about Ezra, so I understand uh, if maybe there's a few Ezra cobwebs uh, going on, I get it. Uh, there might have been one or two for me as well, all right? But if you remember, the first six chapters of the book details the story of the first generation of exiles returning from Persia back to Jerusalem after 70 years of being under God's judgment with, with one fundamental task, and that is to rebuild the temple. Of course, along with that is God doing this whole reviving work. It, it, was, it was an act of redemption. It was an act of, of restoring his people back to the city of God, Mount Zion, rebuilding the temple, the place where God said he would dwell, and, and recommitting themselves to, to covenant life, covenant fidelity. Chapter 6 is a natural ending. Because what we saw, they, they went through a lot of ups and downs, Right? Uh, the exiles didn't do everything right. They had a lot of uh, problems, from in, internal problems, external problems. But eventually, the end of chapter 6, we get this temple done. And that's a time of celebration. And, and for every good movie, that's where you end it, right? Sunset fades. They lived ha- happily ever after. Wouldn't that be great if that were the last verse of chapter 6? But it's not. No, we pick up 60 years later. 60 years. And for the first time, we encounter Ezra himself. Though he is the man that the book goes by, he's the man who wrote the book. It's not until 60 years later that Ezra shows up, and we find out at the beginning of chapter 7 that there's going to be a whole new wave of exiles returning from Persia and that greater empire and going back to Jerusalem. 
Now, I want to put this in its context for you to keep this, this important part in mind. It's been 60 years. This means there is an entire generation of people that have known only life in Jerusalem with a temple. They've known only life with restored sacrifices going on. Priests are in place. Maybe they have some idea of how hard the fight was to get the temple built. But now, 60 years later, these people are grooving, right? They're in it. They're in the city. They've got all of the covenant things going on. And now, what's about to be added to them? But thousands of rookies coming along. People who've been living their entire lives for at least two generations now in exile. People who know nothing of Jerusalem, who know nothing of the temple, not not in actual literal fact, but only in stories passed down. People who, who have who've lived their lives nearly fully enculturated into the Persian society. So this is going to create no small amount of trouble. We're going to see that as Ezra returns to Jerusalem with this next group of exiles, he is going to find people resting on their laurels. And part of his function, maybe even a primary part of his work, is not just to reacclimate exiles back into covenant life, temple life, and continue that work, but to also exhort God's people who maybe have become complacent and lazy. So we spent our time in the first in the weeks leading up to Christmas, so back in November, we worked our way through verses 1 through 10 of chapter 7. These verses introduced us to Ezra, why he matters. It gave us his lineage. It gave us his qualifications as a scribe. Note specifically in verse 9 what it says. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So we found that really Ezra had two things going for him. On the one hand, he had the hand of God upon him, favoring him in some very unique and specific ways. But but he also was a man who sought the Word of God, loved the Word of God, sought to understand it, to live it, and then to teach it. Now, again, we walked our way through it, so I'm not going to re-preach that whole thing, all right? But I would say this, as we enter into a new year, 2022, I know we're a few weeks into it, all right, but... This is my first sermon to you of the new year on a Sunday. All right, so just bear with me. As we enter into a new year, you you can't do better than verse 10. I mean, if you're, I'm not much of like a life verse kind of guy, all right? Um, It's hard for me to say that God wrote one verse better than another, all right? But I understand some folks have it, and that's that's all well and good. And if you're going to have one, verse 10 is as good as it's going to get. What a great verse. If you want direction, if you're thinking, what, what should I do with 2022? Prepare your heart to seek the Word of God, love it, obey it, and pass it along to somebody else. 
There. I've settled your resolutions. Isn't that easy? Aren't you glad you came? There you go. That's it. That's all, that's all you need to do. If you get to the end of 2022 and, and you, you've done half of that, it's hard not to be grateful for what the good work of God that would be accomplished through you, all right? So that's where we were, looking at this introduction to Ezra. But now as we turn to verse 11, now we get to the rest of the story, all right? And this carries on through the end of the book. And I'm going to warn you ahead of time, all right? Spoiler alert, as they say, chapter 6 was a happy ending. Ezra will not be. The end of the book is not. <laughs> that, by the way, is, I would argue, is by design. You say, what does that mean? You'll have to wait till we get to chapter 10. All right? So, Ezra chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. Now we get the rest of the story. How did these exiles get back? Why did they come at all? Uh, we get a little bit more about Ezra, and then we will be introduced to the problems they're facing. This morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to walk our way through what is a letter written from now king of Persia, Artaxerxes, on behalf of Ezra as he makes this journey back. We've seen these letters before. Cyrus had a very similar letter when he released the first generation of Jews to go back to Jerusalem. And, and we're going to see that. So we're, we're going we're to take a look at the letter, its content. Uh, we're going to conclude with kind of some, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a principal point to drive home. And then there are some other theological implications we're going to draw out of this from next week. Because it's killing you. You want to look at your watch. I sense it, all right? I see it in your face. It's like, what time is it? Come on, all right? So don't worry. I know I haven't uh, preached for two Sundays, so I'm not giving you three sermons today, all right? Just hang on with me for a minute, and we'll get our feet wet into the rest of Ezra. And so here's what's going on, and this is not in your notes, but they will be for next week, all right? Uh, so Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 through 28, this is going to detail King Artaxerxes' letter allowing Israel, uh, allowing Ezra and the exiles to go back to Israel, to go back to Jerusalem. And, and along with it, what he's doing is he's ensuring they have everything they need, that they're going to be fully supplied for the work to come. And, and really kind of a principal point that we're driving home, it is the title of the sermon. Just because the temple has been completed doesn't mean the work is done. It could be easy to rest on that. It could be easy for this generation of exiles to think, we got a temple, we got priests, they're functioning, we're good. It assumes that God is only doing stuff in the past that we enjoy today. Truth is, God is a God who is engaged in ongoing work to fulfill His plan. And I hope that we as God's people recognize, you do know God's plan has not yet been fulfilled right? You do know it did not end with the cross and the resurrection. History's not a done deal yet. If history were a done deal, we would not be here, all right? If history were over, this, we're not doing this. So we know that God is still at work, and so God's people should still be at work. God continues to work to ensure that His people have what they need in order to do all that He would command them to do. All right, so here we go. Verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord 
and of his statutes to Israel. So again, Ezra just gives us kind of another little shot here about his credentials. Just in case we were wondering who, who has the right um, to speak about these things, to lead out in these things. This, by the way, is why Ezra is in the position that he's in. Ezra is not only an expert in the law of God, he is a scribe and therefore well-versed in the laws of the Persians. In fact, it is well-believed, and I don't see any reason to, to doubt this, that Ezra served as a type of ambassador on behalf of Jewish issues to Artaxerxes. So this is a man who has the ear of the king, so to speak. He definitely has the respect of the king, and he is the one chosen by God and affirmed by the king to lead another generation of exiles back. By the way, a little tidbit about Artaxerxes. I know you didn't come here for this, but if it comes up, you'll know it. You can answer the question, all right? Artaxerxes is also known as the long-armed king because his right arm was longer than his left, all right? It's weird, okay? It'd be like the toeless king. If he didn't have a big toe, it's a weird thing to identify about somebody, but that's how he's identified. Right hand, long, longer than his left. And so, verse 12, Artaxerxes, king of kings. Boy, did he have a rude awakening when he died. To Ezra, the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Now, that's interesting that Artaxerxes describes God this way. It, it should not be taken to believe that Artaxerxes is a believer, but he does recognize the God of Israel as sovereign. That, that phrase, the God of heaven, that, that would have been an indicator. He sees the God of the, the Jews, one, he recognizes this God exists and that he is a superior God. So it's a significant admission. Perfect peace and so forth. That's a weird way to say it. It's not like he got lazy and said, perfect peace and, you know, the rest of it, all right? Because that's what it sounds like, but it's not. It's kind of a weird way to say, and now, all right? Okay, so pleasantries are over, and now I'm going to get to the heart of it. And Artaxerxes is going to lay out five directives to Ezra. Don't worry, we're not writing this part down. It's right there in the text, so you, I mean, you don't really have to. So, so he's, he's going to give five specific uh, directives. Verse 13, I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of the Lord your God, which is in your hand. Okay, so stop there for just a moment. His first directive, Ezra is given the right to return along with anybody else who wants to go, any other Jew living in wherever they're living in the realm. They're allowed then to leave and go back and be a part of the repopulating, rebuilding effort of the Jewish people. But you'll note specifically how the king tells Ezra to do this and uses that phrase to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the Lord of your, the law of your God. This is our first hint. Something's not right. That there is some indication that there is a concern here. Why else would he institute this act? 
Why else would Artaxerxes send Ezra to, to, to inquire about these things if, in fact, there's not a problem? So this, this gives us our first hint that maybe not everybody's living according to the law of God. Part of Ezra's function is going to be leading them in that way. In fact, we're going to see part of Ezra's job is going to be a, a pretty serious biblical smack to the forehead. All right, I mean, that's, what, that's what's going to happen a little bit later. He's going to get right up in their faces, perhaps much like Haggai and Zechariah did as the prophets to the previous generation. All right, so they're going to inquire concerning the Lord your God. Verse 15. And whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the provinces of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now therefore... Be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and to offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. All right, so the first directive that's laid out here, people can go back. They can return, Ezra and, the, and other exiles, whoever would like to, can return back and along with in, they, they, they can, a second directive, so not only can they go back, but a second directive is that they're given whatever financial resources they need. Cyrus did the same thing. Silver, gold, free will offerings, not just whatever you find where they are, but anywhere you go, throughout the empire, throughout the realm. If you find silver and gold, it's yours for the taking, specifically to buy stuff for the temple in order to continue the work of offering sacrifice. So maybe there's, again, another little insight here that though they've got the temple and though it may be up and functioning, it may not be functioning exactly as God's law says. It's a good thing churches don't ever deal with that. It's a good thing Christians never have to worry about not doing everything exactly the way God says to do it, right? Yeah, so maybe the Old Testament problem is not as old as we might think it is. Now, we want, Artaxerxes want to make, wants to make sure they're doing this thing as they're supposed to. Now, you may wonder why. Why does he care? Just hold on. All right? Now we get into a third directive. Again, it has to do with money. Now, therefore, be careful to buy with this money. Uh, bulls, ram, no, we've already, no, hold on. Have we done that? Yes. Okay. Buy the bulls, buy the rams, uh, everything that's needed for, for the altar. Then verse 18. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of your God. Also, the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. Whoa. So not only does he say, so here's silver and gold, but along the way or when you get there, if you find you've got more than you need... In other words, you, got, you, you bought plenty of bulls and rams, whatever they're going for these days, all right? You got plenty of that. What, use the rest for whatever you want to. That's right according to the law of God. Use it for whatever, for whatever you want to. But then he takes it one step further. 
And he opens up the treasuries of the empire. So he says, but if you need more, come back and ask for it. Has anybody ever heard of governments just giving away money and then when people want more? Okay, all right. Never mind. Too soon. All right. But notice how he keeps going in verse 21. And I, even I, Artaxerxes, the king, issue a decree that all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Now, in other words, it's that, that, all those numbers describe a fabulous amount of, of material. It's practically giving Ezra a blank check, not just in Persia, but when he gets beyond the river. In other words, when he gets to the region occupied by people who, if you remember from the previous part of the story, didn't want Israel to build a temple in the first place. Those people, the people that tried to get Israel in serious trouble, those very people are now going to be a source of revenue for Israel if they need it. Open up the treasuries to them. Now, why does he want to do this? Verse 23, Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Uh-huh. There it is. You see, Artaxerxes absolutely believed in the reality of these other gods of whatever peoples he ruled. It was not uncommon, by the way, for these Persian rulers, it was not uncommon for them to allow the people they had conquered to continue to practice their religion, their culture. It was a way they kept peace, and it seems like Artaxerxes was particularly skilled at this. That he, he was known for this kind of wisdom and, and, and kindness of a sort to allow people to do this. But he seems to have a specific regard for the king, uh, for the, 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 the God of the Jews. And so he says, make sure everything gets done because I don't want God's wrath to be poured out on me. This recognizes, again, the sovereignty of God. The God a God who judges not just his people but the nations. A God who's sovereign over all. Not, not just those living in Jerusalem. It's not just over the temple, but over any. He might describe himself as the king of kings, but that's only an earthly designation. He seems to recognize who the God of heaven is. So what's he doing? He's hedging his bets. This is a religious version of a mutual fund. All right? He's not going to invest all of his money in one company. He's going to spread it out. So if one fails, there's another one over here. Maybe they could pick up the slack. That's what he's doing. He's investing in it all, and he wants to make sure that he's right with this God. So he opens up the treasury. Then notice the next one. How about this in verse 24? Also, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, or the servants of this house of God. Temple servants don't have to pay taxes. What if the government said tomorrow, if you work for a church, you don't have to pay taxes? I bet I get a whole lot of resumes, uh, um, right? I mean, I bet that really increases then the opportunity for people to serve. But that's what he says. Servants of the temple don't pay taxes. And then here's the final one. So just stick with me through this, all right? Verse 25. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom... 
set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river. All are... All such as know the laws of your God, and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. This is amazing. Not only does he open up the treasuries, but he then tells Ezra, I'm going to let you function as governor, and I'm going to let you set magistrates and judges, and not just any kind of magistrate and judge, not my guys, but your guys, not those who just know Persian law, but those who know God's law. And I want you to put them in positions of power and influence, and not just so that your people might be managed, but so that others who do not know the law may be taught. This is amazing. I mean, this this is one of the great I would argue this is one of the great miracles of history (laughs) that God intervened in such a way to put a Jew in this kind of position of power in, in the realm of Persia. Now, don't mistake this. He still expected obedience to the laws of the Persians, but he is allowing then Ezra to, to pick his guys and they can functionally rule and reign themselves according to God's law. Again, he's not just being regional here. He's saying, and teach it to everybody else. You know what he's suggesting? Artaxerxes shows a lot of wisdom because he's suggesting that the best people for his own empire are those who live in obedience to the law of God. I would contend, church, you're going to have to excuse me for just a bit of a rabbit trail, but I would contend one of the most ridiculous ideas that we hear in our modern culture is the fact that those of us who love the Word of God and love the Bible and love God's truth, somehow, somehow we are a danger to the culture. What a ridiculous notion. This nation is all the better if it is full of people who love God's Word. What a silly idea otherwise. What is it that makes us so dangerous? That we're faithful to our spouses, that we are committed to not stealing, that we love life? What is it that's so dangerous? That we believe in in truth and righteousness and justice and mercy and grace? What is so dangerous about it? Of course, you and I know the answer, right? It's the darkness and blindness of the human heart. It's the rebellion and the stubbornness that comes with sin and its depravity. Those who would then turn God's things on its head. But Ezra reminds us, though, God God does have the ability to intervene and change circumstances. Now, listen, I'm not suggesting that's what's going to happen in our day. I don't have any idea. But I am saying this. We should pray for those in positions of leadership. And we should pray that God would change their heart. I know you think that the people, some of the people you see in Washington, D.C. are as hard-hearted and wicked as people as you've ever known, but you've never been ruled by an Artaxerxes or a Cyrus, so I would beg to differ. These were men who engaged in no small amount of paganism, all right? And yet God moved in their heart to benefit the people of God. This is exactly what Paul tells Timothy to pray for. Pray for those who are rulers and leaders, that you might, you might live a quiet and peaceable kind of life, and that, that, the, that the, you might have opportunity then to share and spread the gospel. So let us, let us engage in a similar kind of way. All right, so this is, this is what he says. Ezra, you're going to be in charge of leading this thing. Now you're going to put people in positions of leadership. So notice how Ezra responds. 
Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. So Ezra offers this final then word of praise, adoration to God for his intervention. So I, I, would, I would conclude here with this. Next week, we're going to fill out, some, I think, some theological implications that come out of this story that are important for us in our day, entering into to 2022 and thinking about the, the days that come before us so, so that we don't rest on our laurels. I think, though, that this initial read and study of what's going on here, it's just another reminder to us that in all that we might be facing... And all that might be going on personally in our lives, in the life of the church, in the life of our community, in the life of our nation, and the ongoing realities of this world, it is imperative that you and I remember God has not stopped to be fully and completely sovereign. God is not losing control. God has not retreated back to his heaven. God is engaged in the day-to-day affairs of this world to ensure not that his will gets accomplished 75% or 90% or 99%. The will of God will be fulfilled in all of its fullness and none of the schemes of man will ever be able to disrupt it. If God has to move in the heart of a king, he can move in the heart of a king. If God has to move in the heart of a governor, he can move in the heart of a governor. If God has to move in the heart of a, of a president, he can move in the heart of a president. If God has to move his people, he can move his people. God can do as he sees fit to ensure that his plan comes to fruition. That should encourage us, church. Don't believe for one minute that what you see on the news is the way things really are. I mean, maybe somewhat. But then in other ways, not really. We recognize there's a greater story unfolding. We just see bits and pieces that gets unfolded. We've seen the totality of the word is given, but there's more to the story. There's more fulfillment to come. And so what should we be doing as a result? Well, here's what we should do. We should circle the wagons and hope for the best. We should run to the hills and hide in caves. Oh, wait, that's not in there? We should find our own island and let that be it, right? That's not what it says. What should we do as a result of our confidence in the full and complete sovereignty of God? We should get to work. That's what we should do. We should obey. We should evangelize. We should disciple. We should rear our children. We should raise one another up in Christ's likeness. We should do these things that the Word says. And it doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter about pandemics. It doesn't matter about politics. It doesn't matter what's going on even in our personal lives. The work must continue. So to the work, church. That's what we do. And we do that not because we are able to do this of our own accord. We do this because God in His good grace has saved us and made us new. We do this because we believe there is a greater work that God did in us, that in Christ Jesus, crucified and resurrected, we have the hope of eternal life now, of all that we need for life and godliness, and we have the hope of glory to come. 
Because of the goodness of God's gospel, we can get to the work. And we've been given all that we need in order to do that well. So let us do that. Of course, I'd also make an appeal to anybody here who doesn't know Christ as Savior. Understand where it begins is just that. You are a sinner and separated from God without Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection, placing faith in Him and Him alone, you will spend eternity separated from God. That is not my word, that is God's word. That is what His word says. And so I implore you to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe in Him crucified and resurrected, to ask God to forgive you based on what Christ and Christ alone has done for you, and to be saved. If you want to know more about that gospel, I'll be right down front afterwards. would love a chance to talk with you more. It is imperative that we live a life centered in Christ and obedient to Him in His Word as we enter into a new year that we might do all things for His glory. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we will continue to sing about the goodness of God's salvation to us in Christ alone. Father God, we thank You for the gathering of Your people, for the opportunity to worship on this Lord's Day, to come under Your Word. And we do pray we would be a people of the work the work that's been given to us. Let us not be satisfied. Let us not become lazy and complacent. Let us continue in the good work you've created for us to do and that you've empowered for us to do in the gospel and the presence of your spirit. And so, Father, may your word be brought to bear on our lives by your spirit that we might live in faithfulness to you and all for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.